0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to your refuge of sanity in the murky political waters that are full of false choices. We try to navigate them for you here at The Conservative Conscience. And we're back here on August 30th on Thursday. You know, this is uh, pretty much the – we're in the waning hours of summer, summer vacation. Next week is when crazy things start, school starts, um, the Kavanaugh hearings start. Things get real busy, but for now, I'm actually in a good mood because my wife is back. Um, you know, from her trip with the kids, and you know, it's funny in life. You you can never have have everything you want. It's like I said to myself, I really need just some peace away from the fighting because the kids were just home, you know, all summer, and they were just in each other's hair, always fighting. And, you know, I'm always fighting all day with people and about issues and everything. So I just needed some serenity. So it was nice to get them out of the house. My wife took them to, to my in-laws in Richmond. And, uh, but then I just, I felt so doggone lonely, um, without my wife. And I was thinking, man, can I just have just the wife and not the kids? Um, but you know, look, it's all blessing from God. And, um, You know, so I'm just looking forward to hopefully unplugging a little bit this weekend, Labor Day weekend, um, before, before things really start to heat up. You know, there's a lot of individual things I want to go over today. And just to start off with, there were elections held. Elections held on Tuesday night. And to my knowledge they're pretty much the last major primaries and the broad theme that i've been focusing on you know with these primaries is that really the last two election cycles 2016 and 2018 We didn't even have a modicum of a movement focusing on primaries. We complain about the Republicans. You know, everyone. You know, even those that think that the administration is doing even a better job than they really are. Everyone will tell you, okay, Congress is horrible. Well, you're not going to change it unless you, you know, like change it, (laughs) and that means getting involved in primaries. And we have no, you know, we we have um. A mo- hundreds of millions of dollars, endless staffers and organizations on the right, not just the left, on the right, focused on jailbreak, focused on weak on crime, focus, uh, focusing on one of the most consequential and devastating and politically impactful priorities of the left. Yeah, that, that's the Orwellian movement of the right we have in this country. And yet I said to myself, imagine if we had a fraction of that money spent on recruiting, um, organizing for donating to conservative candidates, and then establishing ties with the White House to get Trump to endorse our candidates, not only would they win, but that would incentivize more drain-the-swamp type of candidates to get in and actually incentivize better recruits so we're not just stuck with the false dichotomy of flaky crazies versus the establishment um, because they would know that Trump would have their back, and a movement would have their back. And it's self-fulfilling because they have a greater likelihood of winning those those primaries. But we don't have that. And this is why we've basically slid backwards this entire season on net. Not only are we going to have fewer Republicans in the House, um, the Senate – might be equal. There's a chance there'll be a few more Republicans, but the type of Republicans we're electing on net are worse, are worse. They, you know, we, we spoke last time about how Republicans love Obamacare, the biggest fiscal issue of our time. No difference between them and the Democrats. These are the type of candidates that we are nominating. These are the type of type of candidates we're nominating. Um, so we had elections in Florida and Arizona, and then the second round, the runoffs in Oklahoma. And it is just it's just really sad, really really sad. Um, you know. Let me let me get back to the Senate race at the end, Ron. De, uh yeah, the governor's race in Florida, Ron DeSantis, because I want to tie into the the monkeying around comment. But just to look at the House, so Ron DeSantis, who's one of the best, smartest, brightest lights we have in the House, he vacated his seat. This is a very conservative. Part of you know Daytona Beach between Daytona Beach and Jacksonville that area, District Six. Do you do you know who who took over the seat, who won the primary? See, you, you don't hear about this stuff. We're, we're, our side is so focused on the Democrat primaries, which is just bizarre. Um, Michael Waltz. There's a video of him out there. You could Google Michael Waltz, global warming, um, national security. Now, those of you who listen to this show know between the border, Hezbollah, the drug crisis, MS-13, crime, we have a major security issue. This man said global warming is the biggest national security issue. This is the guy that just won the nomination for Ron DeSantis's house seat. Folks, we lost a seat even before November. Now, the one good news is in District 17, Tom Rooney retired. Greg Stubbe, a state senator, probably the most conservative state senator, won overwhelmingly with the help of the club for growth. That is one of the few cases where he moved to the right. Um, And I give the club credit. They're pretty much the only ones that are gaming out these races. But, again, the club has a limited amount of money, and what their strategy is – They'll pick a few really good guys that they think are winnable already and they'll go all out. And that's their strategy. But everyone else is kind of like, you know, without anyone. And there was a better guy in District 6. Imagine if we had a movement to say, hey, Mr. Trump, do you understand? Like you have a rhino running there. Now, even the good guy wasn't as good as DeSantis, but whatever. So that was a lost Freedom Caucus seat. Luckily, Greg Stubbe, we got back. Then you had, um, you know, another seat, District 7. This is Stephanie Murphy. This was John Micah's old seat, the old Republican chairman of the Transportation Committee. Um, this is a pretty swingy type of area. So it's a Democrat seat, but it was one of the few um, Democrat held seats that we had a shot at flipping. And there was a primary, and it didn't have to be this way, and this state representative, Mike Miller, who is one of the most liberal representatives in this Florida legislature, got the nomination. And and I actually had someone – maybe you might even be a listener, I'm a, and if you are, I'm, I'm sorry I, f- I forgot your name on Twitter, but someone – you know, one of you reached out to me and said, dang it, I voted for the guy. And I, I don't blame you. I mean – it's so hard when you have Republican districts and you know you or even the swing districts and you have these house primaries, no one knows who's who. There is no movement to identify these people. There really isn't. And this is how we you know, rather than electing thirty more conservatives per cycle, we're not even holding our own numbers. You go to Oklahoma, district one, um Tulsa Base district, where Jim Bridenstine um, vacated to become the NASA administrator. Another Freedom Caucus seat. Everything I know about the guy who won is uh, is awful. I, I, I he's for sure not going to be a Freedom Caucus guy. This is Oklahoma, you know. And then you had the dumpster fire in Arizona. Where we're stuck with Martha McSally. This is the best we could do because just the flawed candidates, conservatives split the vote between Ward and Arpaio and they had major problems and you know but but this is the problem. No one of greater stature would go up against McSally because um, you know they, 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 they they're not guaranteed of getting the Trump support and anyone else's support and this is the problem. This is why I'll say until I'm blue in the face, we need to go to state conventions. Now, a lot of you say, well, well, then we're going to get like crazies that can't win general elections. But what I'm telling you is – but what you'll also get is more like Andy Biggs types. You know, Mark Meadows in North Carolina going for Senate. Jeff Duncan in South Carolina going for Senate. Some of the better House members. You're going to get better recruits, but under the current circumstances, where you have to go through the buzzsaw of moneyed interest primaries, and you're not guaranteed Trump support, you know, then yeah, I mean, it's not going to work. Now, what went right? That's obviously Ron DeSantis for Senate. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, um, and I've said this from long ago. Uh, I, you know. I was proud to have endorsed Ron DeSantis for for house you know back in the day 6 years ago. I've been very close with him since we text all the time. We we've spoken for hours on end about issues. I will be the first to tell you he is presidential material. I don't want to get ahead of myself. He's got to win the governorship. He's got to do a good job as governor. Um but you know you know i'm just reading back to my um endorsement in 2012 and it's, it really is true. I said, DeSantis is truly one of the superstars of the 2012 election cycle. He articulates every conservative policy issue in such an intellectually cogent manner that he leaves no doubt as to how he will vote in Washington. He understands – his understanding of our nation's founders, constitution, and history is so deep and comprehensive that none of the contemporary squishes would impress or intimidate him into violating our nation's deep-rooted principles. Um at just 33, DeSantis has accomplished more and has exhibited a deeper intellect than most people twice his age. He has the unique distinction of, of holding degrees from Yale and Harvard Law while also regarding our contemporary federal Leviathan with disdain. Um, his experience at these universities actually strengthened his resolve to fight against the prevailing philosophies of these very schools, a philosophy that he considers to be hostile to religious faith, unreasonably critical of America, and antagonistic to the free enterprise system. Um after graduation, DeSantis joined the Navy and served in the Jag Corps as an advisor to the Navy SEALs. And I go on and on, and um, he is he's a true star. He's very folksy, very likable. He's got that he really is me. In other words, what I want what I want from a conservative movement and a new party. Um, you know, he's talked to me before about running as a new party. Uh, he gets it. He gets politics. He gets the issues. He gets everything. Um he's a good retail politician too, which he gotta be. He has the ability to raise money. Um all the f- qualities many of us saw in Ted Cruz, albeit I just think he's personally personally more likable, um, really taps into the anti elite blue collar um crowd, even you know, while having a Harvard Yale education. He really, I mean, you know, he he would be, if he wins, he would have that executive experience in one of the most important states, both politically and just just because of its size, swing state, and also having the foreign policy experience of his work in the House. Um, If you remember a couple of months ago, we did a, a podcast with him on policy innovation. He has very good ideas, good legislation. I'm really. I mean, to to me, this is a race we need to go all out in, and it's not surprising that the left has they understand this, which is why they're trying to do a decapitation strike right away. Within a few hours, they catch him saying, you know, hey Florida, we can't mon- monkey things up by going down the socialist route. Now, you know, for those some of you might have heard me say this on Steve Dase's show. There was some sort of hope that we might actually have a mature debate and election over issues. Finally, your best guy who seems articulate, this Gillum guy of socialism, and our best guy to articulate pure free market traditional values, constitutionalism, sovereignty, security, tough on crime – against illegal immigration, even in a state like Florida. He's willing to run on that. He spoke about E-Verify and Sanctuary Cities in his um, acceptance, acceptance speech. And we thought we'd have a mature debate, but we thought wrong. No human being with a shred of intellectual honesty could ever think in their heart that somehow DeSantis had this premeditated plan all right, here's the deal. I'm going to blatantly call black human beings, you know, who happen to have skin color that's a little darker, monkeys, and then that's somehow going to serve a purpose of, like, jazzing up the racist vote, but then the media is not going to catch it. He had this clever plan. Um, Nobody could think that, (laughs) and nobody does think that. This is the ultimate feigned outrage uh, because they don't want to talk about the core issues that, frankly, DeSantis brought up in his accept- acceptance speech Tuesday night. It was a really good speech. You should listen to it, and it's not something you'll find from a raving right-wing whatever. It, it's just really very thoughtful and folksy, which is kind of how he is, and, and that's why he'll he'll use a lot of idiomatic expressions kind of like me. I'm like that too. I, I had this problem, gosh, with our copy editor Cindy. I would I often use either analogies or you know whether it's um sports or combat or things like that. And every time I would use something physical, she would always flag it for me. Daniel, it's like sexual innuendo, and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> who's who's thinking about that? I still happen to think she's oversensitive to that, but it could be sometimes I just didn't realize it. But nobody would think. That like, yeah, because the guy happens to be black, the candidate, so don't monkey up Florida by electing a black. I mean, n- what person would think he's saying that? Nobody. So this would have been a superlative opportunity for a guy like Gillum to say, look, when it, when the media came to him, look, I, I disagree with DeSantis on policies. We're going to make this a serious campaign, contrasting. Our records, what we stand for, our plans for Florida, but the notion that this guy's a racist and and what he meant was anything more than just a figure of speech, monkey around, banana republic, because he doesn't like my policies, is absurd. And this is the type of this is the type of tenor of debate that's actually stifling healthy and rigorous rigorous policy debates in this country. And I'm not going to stand for it. I mean, he he could have really scored points with that. But instead, he showed and proved to us that despite his image from some of his previous appearances on, on cable news that showed him as a more serious individual, it shows us that there is no such thing as a serious progressive. There is no such thing as an intellectually honest progressive. He said... It's very clear that Mr. DeSantis is taking a page directly from the campaign manual of Donald Trump. In the handbook of Donald Trump, they no longer do whistle calls. They do full bullhorns. Now, I know Gillum believes in a lot of crazy things. But there's no way he could believe that Ron DeSantis was saying that. And he knows it. But this this is what we're dealing with. We can't have a serious debate. This is why we can't have nice things. But nonetheless, I do have faith that DeSantis will make this a serious debate, and I think I'm almost positive this is going to hurt Gillum. Voters just don't care about that. There's no gas left into that tank. Everyone everyone sees transparently before their eyes the absurdity of this, and I think that's actually going to hurt Gillum, not DeSantis. That's just my view. Nonetheless, it will be interesting to see what happens here because I, I do believe that while a statewide candidate, especially a governor, gubernatorial candidate, has a little bit more leeway to distinguish himself and stand on his own messaging and develop his own unique brand, distinguished from the president and the party – much more so than a House member. it is still very hard. And what's just so sad is you listen to DeSantis's acceptance speech. there's nothing about it that your reasonable somewhat Democrat independent voter shouldn't want to take a look at him. But it's tough because there's so much baggage baggage with uh, the Republican Party with Trump independently and you know this is this is the problem. So I don't I can't guarantee he's gonna win. I do think he should win but it's gonna be a very tough year. And you saw it was record turnout on both sides, but the percentage increase was much greater among the Democrats. So we'll see what happens with that. But speaking of distinguishing a brand, you know, there's a limit to what I could do as one person. A lot of people are turning to me, Daniel, what's, what's your take, what's your solution? And look, I'm just one low-level guy here, but I will tell you if you had other people with big megaphones saying what I'm saying, developing a new contract with America, getting involved in the primaries. I mean, I gave all this stuff to the Freedom Caucus leadership and they did nothing with it right after the omnibus betrayal in March. So, yeah, now we're stuck. So, in a last ditch effort, I put out, we'll link to on the show notes, 25 no brainer immigration ideas for the remaining 60 days of this election that are not only good policy, will not only deter illegal immigration, demagnetize our border and our interior, save us from the torrent of criminal aliens and MS-13 and drugs, but it's actually all one massive political winner that will completely reorient the messaging of the debate It will force votes on issues where Democrats will have to be showing, I want illegals voting in our elections. I want them stealing our sovereignty. I want them getting welfare. I want them taking the place of American workers. I want them counted in the census. I want sanctuary cities. I want MS-13. I want the drug crisis. The, the type of Willie Horton-style ads Republicans would be able to run on this. And also, imagine if you spent time passing these 25 bills. Most of them are bills that have been introduced by various members, but will never see the light of day on the floor with leadership. If you actually had this agenda, you know what I would do is, since Republicans are the ones playing defense, and it's mainly Democrats that are trying to dislodge them, Repub- Democrats have more to benefit from more campaign time. In other words— You know, you think that, oh, wow, this is a big deal. They're coming back finally after a six-week break. They're coming back after Labor Day. But the truth be told, it's only for a few weeks. Then they're out the entire October to campaign. If I were Republicans, I would keep them all in until like a week before the election. Keep them in. And hold one – and you control the floor. The House, lock, stock, and barrel, and even the Senate – you, you could tell me, well, with the 60-vote threshold, you don't control the outcome until you want to reform the filibuster, which is a whole other thing. Fine, but at least hold the votes and force them to block you know, cloture and nail them. They create ads. So I want you to take a look at it, and I want you to read through them and think to yourself as you're reading through them. Imagine the ads that could be created based on these votes you would conduct. On such legislation, such ideas. Imagine if. Imagine what would happen to our country if we actually passed this stuff. And then you'll conclude so long as we have the Republican Party supposedly being the vehicle and avenue for conservatism in this country, we can't have nice things. And again, you read this stuff. There's nothing really conservative about it. I, I, I challenge my liberal listeners: take a look at my 25 ideas and tell me what's conservative about it. I mean, it's just straight up sanity of a sovereign country. Not to have illegals vote and and uh, counted in the census and fleecing America and taking welfare. I mean, the visa overstays, which the 9/11 Commission dealt with. I mean. It, they're all no-brainer bills. Now, I, I, I want to make it clear what I was trying to do. Now, this is not all you know, divine from from Sinai. You know, I didn't like spend a day on each proposal. I wrote it up pretty quickly. I, you know, there there might be a couple of ideas I missed and a couple of better ones that should have swapped out. I definitely have a lot more than twenty-five. I have closer to to, to fifty, but you know, I couldn't you know make make this a five thousand word piece. But the the goal, to be clear, is these aren't necessarily the 25 dream ideas, although they're all very good. What these are designed to do is show – I want to just give you a sense of what could be, that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to spend the next 60 days on, on Mueller and Stormy Daniels and you know whatever the Democrats want to make – the debate about whatever the media wants to make it about, and then we fall for the for the trap, and then we just you know respond, and we're always reactive, reactive rather than being proactive in defining the election narrative on our more favorable terrain. Okay, it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. So I didn't pick things that are systemic. In other words, I would argue that they're. Kill shots on the systemic uh, magnets of illegal immigration, but they're all one offs. They're not like, for example, I didn't have the RAISE Act in there, you know, getting rid of chain migration, totally reorienting our illegal immigration. That, you know, that's not something you could say, oh, yeah, just, just pass in a day right before the election. That obviously will take time to develop, even though I believe it is a, very much a winning issue, winning messaging, merit based over chain migration. Um, even the Democrats admit they're taking on water on that if we would only pursue them on it. But that's not a one off. It's not like a no brainer. Just do it right now, pass it tomorrow. I, I tried to pick just very, you know, they're isolated things that are just one offs, but are, will make a huge difference. You know, going after identity fraud, which we spoke about last week, mandating that the IRS and SSA stop issuing these taxpayer identification numbers to illegals and actually. Um, clamp down on the use of – you know double use of social security numbers and check them, check immigration status in order to give refundable tax credits. All of this stuff completely traps the left because their whole point is, oh, these are really productive people. Well, if they're productive, then why are they a net liability tax-wise? They should be a net tax contributor if what you're saying is true. Um, no citizenship for MS13. I mean, just really simple mandatory deportation of drunk drivers. Let the Democrats de- defend illegal alien drunk drivers. You know, deporting all sorts of criminal aliens, making it easier, making English the the, the official language. Very popular. Um, you'll see some ideas are you know obvious to you. Some of them might be a little bit new and innovative, uh, but they're all very simple. I didn't include things that the, the I view are no brainers, but you know, the, the Republican political class is like, oh no, you can't do that. Like birthright citizenship. I didn't touch that. Um because I do believe if you do all these other things and get rid of all those other magnets, it will become irrelevant. Uh, meaning if you go after identity theft and you basically fix asylum and UACs, and you go after the welfare, and you go after um, all the things that will ultimately detect them and ensure that they can't get a job. It's irrelevant; they're not going to come. So the whole issue of birthright citizenship for illegals will will really go away, you know, pretty quickly. Um, I didn't include eVerify directly there, even though that's also very popular and a no brainer because like I said last week if you actually take care of the identity theft side on the on the government's end without doing it on the pl- employer side it will it will take care of itself meaning under my proposals they won't be able to file a tax return that will catch them immediately so even if you don't mandate e-verify they they couldn't get a job and they'll be caught o- over time so you know The whole ag lobby, they're all bought out. So many Republicans won't sign on to it. I'm trying to indulge even their sensitivities and think of here are 25 ways that will absolutely solve illegal immigration, absolutely easy to message, one-offs, easy to take back to your district. Things like, instead of saying no refugees, how about giving the authority of state legislatures and governors – To approve it, if you're going to resettle refugees, shouldn't the governor and the state legislature have to affirmatively take a vote and sign off on it? That's a very popular sovereignty type of issue, very popular. Take back to your states and localities. Um, this type of stuff. I'm telling you, you know, defund sanctuary cities and give the funding to ICE. That cuts to the core. Of what Democrats want to do, which is coddle illegals and abolish ICE, which is so unpopular. Mandate jail time for sanctuary city officials that openly thwart immigration law. I mean, you'll go through this, and there's many more ideas. Imagine if we had a party and a movement making these plays. And By the way, some of them can be done administratively, and a few of them, I would argue, are already required under current law, but we you know, don't do it. Um, such as the no refundable tax credits for illegals really is a part of the 1996 welfare um, bill that that is you know current law. So just understand this is the movement we don't have. We don't have a movement thinking, man, what are the kill shots on a certain issue we need to take care of? But what's the easiest way to do it? What's the best way to message it? That's a winner. Like we don't have people thinking of this, and that that that's the problem. But you should know Ron DeSantis is very much like that. We always had these long conversations about policy innovation on winning issues, and I think if you look at a lot of legislative ideas, like he was the one that had bills to get rid of convention uh, congressional pensions. You know that that's a very good issue to run on. He has term limits. Um. So anyway you know i am very bullish on him you know no one's perfect you could always find votes they took or you know political calculations they make um, but again this is a guy who ran in florida against the sugar subsidies which owns florida it tells you who he is he had a lot of uh, really nasty ads run against him more than all the other republican and democrats put together but again he won by almost 20 points because of the trump endorsement i don't want to say he would have necessarily lost without trump but Clearly, I mean, the 20-point victory over a guy who had all of the establishment – uh, one, one Tallahassee insider was famously quoted in a Florida paper a couple months ago that in the entire Tallahassee, I don't know more than two people voting for Ron DeSantis. And it, it just proved the point. The entire establishment was formed. And again, this shows when Trump makes the right pick how impactful it is. Imagine if we had Trump getting involved in the House seat to replace him, and all these other House races. We could have had 30, 40 better House members than than we're getting today. But we don't have a focused movement. We have a pathetic movement that more often, to the extent they're focused on policy, they're focused on policies of the left, like weak on crime laws. And before I move on to jailbreak update, just want to update you on you know some of the latest developments. I like to follow through. You know when I warn you guys, there's problem problems, and now the president said we're going to punt it, and you know just where things stand. But just to go back to one of our earlier points here, why we can't have nice things. That, I mean, you know, I am a political hack in terms of policy and ideology, and first principles. But it, you you also know me, you know. Friend and foe of me that if it's something that's not related to that, I'm not going to be a hack about it. If a Republican happens to do – if it's a scandal, if it's this or that, I have my beliefs, and I'm going to be consistent about them unless someone you know, – I'm proven wrong or someone uh, is able to convince me otherwise. I'm not going to flip on that, but I'm not going to play the political game. I'm not going to politicize something that's not political. I'm not going to policyize something that's not policy. So, you know, if a Democrat has a flub or a gaff or not even a gaff and says, I'm not going to use it against him if I don't believe that that reveals something fundamental. You know, someone just stammers or stumbles on a word. I don't care how much I hate the guy on policy. I'm not going to make it up. And just to talk about how certain things shouldn't be politicized, I just want to go back to what we talked about at the beginning of the week John McCain's um, death. You know, because I just had in the background, I saw on TV as I'm recording John McCain's funeral, and I, I just want to say what I find so distasteful is, you know, like all of us, we grieve. Especially that form of cancer is just so devastating. Um, once a political opponent is on his deathbed, is no longer a threat politically. You know, you kind of move on and. I I haven't really talked about him for a long time because he's been out of the picture, and I had no desire to say anything negative. But what was so difficult here is that John McCain and his family, and certainly fanned by the media, until the last minute politicized his death. It was like one big reality TV show. It was like a reality TV death. Puts out a book. You're not invited to my funeral. You're not invited. You're not invited. He puts out this official statement designed on his own death, designed to be read to the public, that really had a lot of political overtures in it. I mean, say that's very difficult. You know, death shouldn't be political. We're not going to politicize it. But what happens if the guy who's dying himself politicizes his own death? And it's like, Sarah Palin, you're not invited to my funeral. I mean, that's really low. I don't care you know whether you're conservative, liberal, what you think about Sarah Palin. Sarah was till the bitter end was always just very um, gracious, thankful that he, he, she uh, that that he chose her as the running mate in 2008. despite negative things he started to say and certainly his staff and supporters, she never would return the favor. So it's one thing you say okay Trump is an enemy oh you're not invited but really to start announcing Sarah Palin you're not invited to my funeral I mean it's this type of stuff that is just it's just so sad um they are the ones politicizing and so just as I'm watching this I'm seeing you know McCain and not McCain but one one of these speakers who is this guy um Tommy Espinoza, he's speaking at the at the funeral, and it's just such a shame. He starts praising McCain for being, you know, liberal on immigration. I mean, really. This is the problem with the left. It is impossible to have a gracious, graceful policy debate with them. There there is no way. Show me a blueprint. Don't say, oh, both sides do it. You know me. I'll shake hands on only discussing substance. Say what you want about me, but it's as substance-oriented as as you're going to find anywhere else. I have no desire to get into the soap opera, but this is the problem. It's like they they politicize everything. in order to silence debate. Oh, this guy's a war hero and he just died, so shut up, immigration hawks. Like, no, wait, that, that doesn't help your cause. I mean, like, come on. And by the way, this, this is a growing thing trend we're finding where, you know, with Parkland and things like that, and like I said before, it's totally fine to take an anecdote and say, this is why we need a certain policy solution. I have no problem with that. We all do that, and as, as we should, if we believe that, we're right about it, and you know others are free to disagree, but that's the thing. They stifle debate. They use it on both sides to stifle debate. So what they do is they actually have the victims themselves. They stick cameras in front of them and, shut up, you can't say anything because this guy's a victim. Well, look, God bless him, but you know, lost friends or family members, but I believe as a matter of policy they're wrong, and I have the right to say that, and that can't be used to silence me. So now what they're doing when it comes to immigration – unlike the gun debate, is they're saying we're not even allowed to talk about it when we don't even mention the family. We don't go up to the family and use the family. We use ourselves and just say, look, this is what happened. Here's how they engage in identity theft. Here's how they remain in the country undetected with the sanctuary cities. And here's why this would be totally unavoidable if we did this and this. But it's it's a step further. They're now silencing... Even the family members that want to speak out. So we've had – you remember we had Eileen Smith from Colorado Springs area. She lost a son in New Mexico, or unborn son, due to a seven or nine-time drunk driving illegal alien. He had uh, nine arrests for drunk driving, suspended driver's license. He should never have gotten a driver's license. And this occurred over the period of 15 years. He was never deported and then one day he crashes into uh, their their family car while they while they were going to the baby shower for that very unborn baby and the baby died in her arms and you know she was told she she told me on air off air that you know they made it very clear the media um you're not allowed to talk about immigration status like you're not even allowed to mention it. So anyway, um, a new friend of mine, Todd Bensman of the Center for Immigration Studies, I, I should have him on the show one of these days. Uh, just came over from the Intel Department of Texas Department of Public Safety to now work for CIS, and he's written some very important articles. And you, you gotta, you gotta hear this. I just want you guys to to hear this. There was a murder a couple months ago of this uh, college student. You know, same age as Molly Tibbets. this was a man, Jared Vargas in San Antonio, Texas. He was murdered by a uh, 20 20 uh, year old illegal alien, Ernesto Esquivel Garcia. So I mean, we have we have nothing, I mean, no information about this, but this was classic example of a guy who had already been behind bars for drunk driving. Notice how a lot of the murderers had previous drunk driving incidents. There, there's a lot to be said about that. Not not everyone who has a DWI is going to commit murder, but a lot of the, the those who commit murder, the point is it's not in a vacuum. Usually, they had a criminal record, and if they're an illegal, by definition, they should have been out of here. We would argue, if our policies were in place, you do a significant number of those twenty-five items, even a few of them that we have on our list. You're not going to have them coming to begin with. But even without that, to the extent they come and at least they they commit a crime, you should definitely get them out before they commit murder. And this is a very important thing because you know, just basic criminology, study of criminology in general, uh, not just aliens, just everyone, the entire entire universe of murderers. It, I, I saw a stat that 80% of those serving time for homicide in New York prisons, and likely the case most other places, had prior convictions, which is not surprising. Usually, you don't go from zero to 100. You don't go from never being arrested for anything to suddenly just saying, hey, I'm going to kill someone. Usually, you, you've done a lot of other bad stuff that's you know less severe, and then you kind of build up to it over your career of, of criminality. So this is all avoidable, but he posted bond by an immigration judge, classic example, um, and he knew that this would this could get him deported, and then a few weeks later, he murdered Vargas. So even though, by the way, he was actually behind bars previously in between for violating probation conditions, but he was released. And then and then went on to to murder. Now I, I don't know much about Vargas if he was a legal immigrant or child of illegal immigrants, but you know again, this is what happens you're not doing immigrants favors by having open borders and bringing in illegal immigrants and criminal aliens that will make America more like the countries that they're coming from rather than the America they sought to to, to become a part of. So anyway, on June 18th, a couple months ago, they found Vargas's burned-out body. Somehow these people are—a lot of these MS-13 types are so into burning people. Um, And the cause of death was homicidal violence. And they never revealed how he was killed. So Benzman writes an article here that uh, Esquivel Garcia was on the scene, among other bystanders, watching firefighters put out the blaze. After police questioned him, they charged him with murder, arson, and abuse of a corpse— Geez. Now read read this. The San Antonio Express News and KSAT television news reporters dug around. The newspaper found that Esquivel Garcia had worked with his victim at a local restaurant called Bowl and Barrel. And again, just another example how... It's going to be people, part of the legal immigrant and illegal, mainly Hispanic community, that are going to be the most hurt by our our, uh, sanctuary policies, our refusal to address criminal alien problem and call it out as such. That there is a significant criminal element, that it's all redressable, that we coddle it and cover it up, and they could all be thrown out tomorrow, and all this is avoidable. This is a basic stat from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. It's a little bit old, but I, I don't see why this should change. It's very, it's a very fixed, uh, you know, factor in criminology that 78.1 percent of homicides are non-strangers. In other words, usually you know the guy, you some acquaintance, you know him. Random street murder, random violence is the minority of cases. Usually, the murderer knows the victim. In some way, so by definition, criminal aliens will harm most often the Hispan- you know, Hispanics, uh, Americans of of Hispanic heritage, or or uh, uh, other illegal immigrants, just based on geography. And by the way, it's the same issue with jailbreak, those that are, you know, basically want to dismantle the criminal justice system because they say we lock up too many blacks, but what they don't realize is the the people overwhelmingly like 90 95% hurt by that are other blacks. So it's a similar concept here. But anyway, he was able to obtain the documents necessary to work how he was able to obtain the documents is 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 not known, of course. Escal Garcia apparently had been in the country illegally, illegally for about three years. Again, three years, you do the math. That puts it at 2015. I'm finding a lot of these cases came in very recently. I've said this before, that I think there's a lot of firm evidence to conclude that the wave of illegal immigration from DACA in 2014-2015 Is likely pound per pound per capita the most violent and destructive wave of illegal immigration that we ever had, much more so than the wave we saw in the 90s and, you know, like 2003 to 2006. Anyway, he came to the attention of ICE after a March 1st, 2017 arrest on drunk driving, criminal mischief charges in San Antonio. For those, he pled down to a lesser charge of obstructing a highway. Because we all know it's very hard to prove um, drunk driving often, and he received deferred adjudication with 12 months probation. See, we already have so many people – and this is not just illegals; even Americans like this. We have so many people not serving jail time that should be – this whole jailbreak thing is such crap. But anyway, this legal problem prompted deportation proceedings, but he quickly bonded out. In April, while the immigration case sat, it took a federal – Immigration judge more than a year to adjudicate the case. Um, finally, just weeks before Vargas was murdered, the immigration judge ruled um, and granted Escal Garcia the chance to voluntar- voluntarily leave. In other words, if you do that, then you're not subject to the bars of five, 10-year bars of uh, returning to the country, even legally. It's like, you know, penalty. And, and, and by the way, just so you know, I don't understand. I mean, call me harsh, but I don't understand why it's harsh. I don't understand why it's a five or 10-year bar. I don't understand why we don't have a zero tolerance. Just, do we want to stop illegal immigration or not? And if we want to stop it, why don't we just say, if you're caught coming here illegally, you can never for the remainder of your life ever come here again legally. I'm saying, do you want to deter it or not? Make that the law and then have a 10 million... Dollar Spanish language media campaign in Mexico, um, the Northern Triangle of Central America, Venezuela to the extent you could, and some other South American countries, and several others where we have a lot of illegal immigration, and, and just that's it. But we don't do that. Now, local authorities in a city known for opposing a state law requiring cooperation with ICE, which San Antonio does had other chances to keep Garcia behind bars, but they did not. An ICE statement to the local media reported that soon after Escaval Garcia learned of his May 21st, 2018 voluntary departure order, he showed up at an ICE facility to pay his departure bond. ICE officers there discovered another active criminal warrant for Garcia. He reportedly failed to report to a probation officer, pay court fees, or complete a victim impact panel and DWI education program. Among other violations, they arrested him turned him over to local police. His probation for the highway obstruction conviction was revoked. Now, he goes on to say things get very blurry and whatever. Um, But he then quotes an unverified report And I got to find out more about this, but a a family friend is saying, again, I mean, you know, the media is quoting family friends of, you know, victims of illegal immigration when they're kind of liberal and kind of saying, hey, no one should make this about immigration. So it's fair to quote here, too, um, saying that the San Antonio police chief, William McManus, and city attorneys told the Vargas family not to go public about the case. Police deny that. I'm just saying. There's a concerted effort to stifle debate on anything in this country. We don't live in a country with the equal application of law. We live in a country that is defined by race and identity and protected classes. If you're a protected class, you could do whatever you want, and no one could fight against you. If you're not, we'll throw the book at you. And it's it just, it just really sad. Really, really sad. I want to discuss one more thing for today before we um run out of time. And I know we're – I know I'm probably forgetting some, some other things. But – oh, gosh, jailbreak. I forgot to get to that. See, I got so distracted, so I don't even know if we're going to have time for this. I want to discuss uh, the DOJ lawsuit. DOJ is joining the suit against Harvard for openly discriminating against Americans of Asian heritage by taking those that are well qualified to be admitted to Harvard and giving their slots to people less qualified because they are purely racist. Meaning you know Obama's DOJ past DOJs have have uh used Government as a boot to go after private institutions for bs discrimination, for not for not discriminating for because they want equal outcomes rather than equal opportunity. This is a legitimate case of discrimination, real hardcore discrimination. And you know, I, I must say, Jeff Sessions, you know whatever you think of him on Mueller, but when it comes to the policies on religious liberty, on the civil rights, on real discrimination, on immigration, on crime, he really is shaking things up. He's doing everything he can, with no support from the White House. So I'm just saying, you know, you, you got to look balanced. I know some of you are disappointed with the whole Mueller business and everything, Rod Rosenstein, but you know, he really is doing a lot of good, and this is one of them. I know that acting assistant attorney general for the civil rights division wanted to come on the show, but then it couldn't make it. So we are going to discuss that. Maybe we'll discuss it tomorrow or or later this week. But that's an important uh, important thing going on. Uh, we will link to as well, so you just get a better idea of what's going on there and how you know Jeff Sessions is totally taking it to them, saying, "Hey, we're going to apply Title VI of the Civil Rights Act equally the way it really should be," and Harvard takes federal funds. And part of their agreement is that they won't discriminate. Well, that's discrimination. And in fact, they actually have um, – they actually have – this is unbelievable. So how do they get away with this? You know, if if uh, – let's say you have a pot of Asian Americans – Americans I – I say I hate those terms – Americans of Asian heritage who score higher than, let's say – whatever else, whoever else they're using to take that slot. So how do they justify it? So what they do is they create this personal assessment. Your character, how well likable you are, just kind of like, hey, it's not just academics. And, and that's fine. That's that that's fine. That, you know, we want you to be a good person. Um so we're gonna have this extra criteria that that basically factors in Ah, uh, this different stuff, you know personal ratings. So you know what they do then they openly do this. So whether it's it's called positive personality, likability, good person, human qualities, Harvard admits on average that it scores Asian American applicants lower on personal rating than white applicants and I would assume probably black applicants too, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, dude, you want to talk about racism? You want to talk about monkeying around here? I mean, dude, that's like weapons-grade race. That's real racism. That because they, these uh applicants score higher, they created an entire personal thing. And, and look, it would be one thing if you know americans of asian heritage were just unlikable stick in the muds a bunch of sobs more than any other people but i don't think anyone could point to any um <laughs> you know any evidence that that's true and, and no one would tell you that and yet they openly score them lower just to exclude them dude that is the racism there. See what Harvard is for, and all the liberals are for, rather than equal opportunity, and then you let the you know results of a meritocracy fall where they are and, and you just don't focus on on identity and you treat everyone like an individual. instead, they're so into groups and a representation of this number of people that they downright discriminate in the, in, in literally the traditional sense. Of invidious discrimination, where you downright may see they don't want to confront the truth like, hey, okay, you know, more of these people, you know, on average, Jews and Asians are going to score higher than blacks and Hispanics and even other whites on average, right? That is a fact. Now, who cares because everyone's an individual and you'll have individual. Asian applications that you say, hey, the guy sucks. He's low scores. And you have individual Hispanics or blacks like, wow, this guy's amazing. But, you know, if you're going to look at numbers, but, but we, we don't care. But that is true. What is not true is to say Hispanics, uh, uh, Americans of Asian heritage, are um, less likable. Okay, th- that is not true. There is no data to back that up. And yet they do that. So they're willing to lie for equal outcomes or unequal outcomes, in pursuit of equal outcomes. But they're not willing to tell the truth, in pursuit of equal opportunity. These are the people we're dealing with. This is this 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 is what a progressive is. Um. So so kudos to uh, Sessions for going after them. Just wanted to just really real briefly with jailbreak. Uh. You know, a lot of people have commented on noting that what the heck you had these Islamic crazies have a training camp in New Mexico, starve a kid to death there, training kids to commit school shootings. The guys – I mean this is such a national security issue. And the New Mexico judge lets them go. And a lot of people are commenting on saying, well, what's the deal? Some people are saying, well, really, the prosecutor dropped the ball. They have, they have what, 10 days to show probable cause, and this and that. And I don't know the exact details, but I just want you, you guys to know, this is exactly what I mean when I say that forget about drug trafficking. If you just take the most dangerous murderers or murder type of people – there are thousands of them. We let go. We have a two. We have an under-incarceration problem. We have an under-prosecution problem. We have an under-sentencing, under-conviction problem. We have too many loopholes. A lot of people are reflexively assuming the prosecutor was incompetent, but I, you you don't understand how hard it is, even in slam dunk cases of the most violent people to hold them initially and to convict them. There are, if you're a good defense attorney, there are so many loopholes. Now, this case, it might not have been the judge's fault. It might be the state law. But the laws are the problem. We need criminal justice reform the other way. And that's the case here. We need it the other way. You know, it's all about defining the landscape. It's funny. Um, Rand Paul and all the libertarians and the jailbreak people are putting out this phony push-pull. And I never under- – see, I understand push polls as a way of disp- you know, trying to just publicly dispirit disp- the other side. Oh, we're winning. But I never understood the purpose of lying to yourself, meaning if you misrepresent what's going on. So they literally have polls. What if you have a new father that's desperately trying to find funds for his kids? For to raise his family, he never did anything, and in fact, he's really better than everyone else. And he just happened to be like forced into some drug tra- drug possession. They wouldn't say drug trafficking. Do you think he should be locked up for life? And do you like? And then they get you know a certain result. Like, oh look, the public agrees with us. If you pull people, is general, is our system too tough or weak on violent cr- criminals, on drug traffickers killing so many people, on murderers? You'll get the exact opposite. So anyway, there's that going on. What a bunch of garbage. But yet we don't have a conservative movement that's focused. We have a monkeyed up conservative movement that is turning this nation into a banana republic. (laughs) Sorry about the pun there. I couldn't help it. Thanks for listening, y'all. God bless. Until next time, this has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience.